Fine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Zach, how you feeling, man? You know, slowly getting better. It's a, good. It's good. a it's a climb. It's not quite uh, not quite at the summit yet, but you know, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> a climb. It's there's there's a mountain. You see it. You're yeah. there. I always find the last few days of being sick for me are kind of the worst. Like mm-hmm. they're not the worst of the symptoms, but they're like the times that I'm just like really frustrated. Like it's it'd be the time like I'm almost over the cold, but in the middle of the night I'll wake up to like a crazy coughing fit. Mm-hmm. At like two in the morning, I'm like fucking, I just want to be done. Yeah. And it's like you know you <laughs> you hate it so much, or your nose runs for like two weeks. Yeah, after. it's so annoying. There's, there's something to the notion of being like really like you know pretty sick where you can kind of be like I just can't do stuff, so I'm okay with that. Yeah. But it's it's weird to be like okay enough to basically have to do all the shit you have to do in daily life, but not be a hundred percent for it. Because doing it yeah. when you're a hundred percent is hard enough, but doing <laughs> it when you're like eighty five, ninety percent is like that. There's no fun. I don't want this. No fun. <laughs> so then, I mean, have you been drinking or anything? What have you been? What have you been doing? Oh, I've always been drinking. Oh, oh yeah, I've been drinking. Don't you? <laughs> what you got? What you got there? What you got? Um, I think the couple of things that I've had recently that have been, um, you know, most enjoyable for me. Mm-hmm. So. Like you guys, I, I am a, a, a regular listener of um, of all of our podcasts in the in the Vine Pair Podcast Network, but but it's often Cocktail College that gives me inspiration for things to drink because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it just kind of makes me um, think about what you know classic cocktails and and while I don't necessarily go through and like every week make whatever Tim and his guests are discussing, um, sometimes they do kind of give me inspiration. So um, his recent episode on the zombie has not inspired me to make any zombies because I did, I'm did. i not that crazy. Pretty labor intensive. <laughs> um, and being sick, I'm not going to any tiki bars anytime soon. So, um, But I have, I, it did make me think about how I, I often neglect absinthe as an ingredient in cocktails. I don't think about mm. it as something unless oh, I'm, I'm having a Sazerac. Um and so I've been kind of playing around with a couple of cocktails with with absinthe, um, you know, just just sort of frankly seeing where it might fit in into some uh, into some cocktail recipes that I like or into some kind of um, classic formulations that I like. So I've been playing around with kind of adding a little bit of absinthe into uh, what is essentially mm. a Manhattan recipe. So sweet vermouth and and whiskey, usually bourbon, um, if I'm using absinthe because I think I want something a little sweeter um, to kind of contrast the the sharpness and dryness of of absinthe and so um yeah i've been playing around with that um are you and doing then, substitutions or are you adding just adding? I, that one i just added about a half ounce of absinthe in along with my half mm. ounce of sweet vermouth and then two ounces of of bourbon okay. um to just kind of round it out add a little different note the downside to adding absinthe in cocktails like that that are otherwise like stirred cocktails is like it clouds so you have that yeah. kind of like weird muddy water looking thing which mm. i personally don't mind like whatever i'm just making it for me but i get why it's maybe less of an uh, an ingredient that people want to use in, in cocktail bars because it doesn't look super pretty it doesn't come through clean the other place i've used it and this is another thing that i really enjoy is um just a little bit of it as a spritz um so with mm. you know with sparkling wine um or sometimes sparkling wine a little bit of uh, soda water if I want to kind of stretch it a touch and and there's something about like you know it takes it in a very very different direction than yeah, like wow. Aperol or something does but it to come back to a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about spring uh, drinks there's something about that kind of uh, sort of anise fennel herbaceous note of absinthe mm. that I think really works this time of year in a spritz whereas I think you know we talked about the Aperol spritz being a really summery drink and I 100% agree but but uh, but an absinthe spritz is kind of more it feels more spring Cool. And, and how much are you using there? 
Uh, that's about an ounce, ounce and a half. If I'm oh, feeling okay. frisky. interesting. I don't know. Yeah. That's a lot of. Yeah, it seems like a lot of absinthe. Yeah. Very well, small. you know, shit gets wild in my house. Okay. Shit gets crazy, <laughs> okay. especially when I'm sick. Okay. You gotta you gotta trip a little bit just to get through. How about you, Joanna? What you been drinking? Um, well, I haven't really gone out much uh, recently, but two new to me drinks that I've had: uh, one that I made and one that was made for me by the lovely Tim. Um, one was one was a Black Manhattan. I've never I've never had one of those before, and oh. I've never really had Averna before. Not not that I've never had it. I've never had a bottle of Averna at mm-hmm. home before. So, got one and made a Black Manhattan with obviously with rye. Um, Angostura bitters and orange bitters, orange twist. That was pretty good. Cool. Um, and then Tim at our last drinks class made us a few cocktails with Irish whiskey. It was on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, I'm and sure that got lit. <laughs> I left before it got lit, I think. But, uh, <laughs> but no, he made us all some uh, Cameron's Kicks. And those were really good. That's a it's a split base of Irish whiskey and scotch ah. with um, some lemon juice and orgeat and a lemon twist. Oh, nice. Tim, it was great. Sounds delicious. I, actually, like really, I would make it again. Like, he told me he time. has like some stuff still in the freezer here. Yeah. Oh. He's like, I've got some of those cocktails. In the oh, freezer hmm. still. We'll, ex- we'll excuse you, Joanne. I feel like <laughs> okay, I'll be right back. That. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Adam? Uh, so I finally went to Double Chicken Please, uh-huh. and I had two really, really cool cocktails there. Um, I think they they've obviously gotten a good amount of press, but it's weird. They feel like they haven't gotten the same kind of level of press as other cocktail bars have that mm-hmm. have opened recently. You know, I think they. You know, I do agree. They're probably one of the more, if not the most, inventive cocktail right. bars right now. Explain their uh, explain their deal. So it's it's two bars in one. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the front, everything's on draft, and it's pretty like classic cocktails. Like they're twists on classics, but everything pulls from a draft. Um, it's no reservation, very mm-hmm. chill. Then there's like a really cool like smoked glass door, and behind that door, you make a reservation. You can go in, and it's the actual bar they call it the back room Mm -hmm. and in that room all the cocktails they're making are supposed to be basically thought of as food Mm -hmm. and so they all actually mimic the flavors of classic dishes so like they have cocktails on the list like cold pizza that literally tastes like cold pizza Mm -hmm. they have one that i have which was cold sesame noodles which was amazing they have mango sticky rice uh you know they have uh, rum raisin cinnamon bun like it's they're just really really cool drinks mm-hmm. and all of them taste like food and while i was there they were workshopping a cheeseburger cocktail wow oh my god uh, that's so fun and they were doing it and and they're really funny they play around with stuff really well so they were doing it with saint germain mm-hmm. because the joke is that saint germain has always yeah. been bartender's ketchup and so oh, they're clever. playing with that to mm-hmm. then create like this flavor of cheeseburger. It's really cool. Um, I, I think it's probably one of the most like like giggle inducing mm-hmm. times you'll have drinking just because you're just like this is so fun and unexpected and unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, that that's probably the most memorable um, drinking experience I've had in the last in the last seven days. <laughs> It's a good one. It's a good one, right? <laughs> I, I definitely, I encourage everyone to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone and go listen go. to the interview you did with uh, one of the founders. Uh, GM, a, yeah. A couple, yeah, a couple of years ago now, in the early COVID days, which probably also explains why they didn't get quite as much press, because I feel like they launched kind of before people were like, fuck it, we're going to go out anyhow. Right. It was very like, yeah, it was definitely like the the the, the thick of the early part of COVID. Totally. Um, so, 
I have a topic today to talk about. If you have looked at your uh, notes in your wherever you get your podcasts, you've seen what this title is already. So just to preface, uh, there's going to be a lot of me talking at the very beginning. Uh, please bear with us, dear ladies and gentlemen, um, boys and girls, dudes and dudettes. Uh, I want to lay out a theory, and my theory is how natural wine ends. Um, and... <laughs> This is a, this is a, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of you are sitting here being like, it never does. And that's cool. I respect that. I'm not saying how it, how this is ever going to go away. Right. What I mean is I've thought, I've looked at the history of lots of other movements and there's so many similarities between movements that we've seen throughout the drink space and natural wine. I think mm -hmm. that when we look at some of these movements, we can really create what I believe is the going to be the path forward of natural wine. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to have to accept some things with me along the way in order to buy into the theory. You might not, right? We might get to the end of this and Zach tell me that I'm a complete idiot, mm -hmm. but then I want to have a discussion about just this in general. And then we can talk about our theories right? and your theories. Right. Mm -hmm. But here's, here's the general theory, right? So if you want to think about natural wine, the first thing you have to understand is that it's a term that means nothing. Right. So you have to accept that, right? You have to, listening to this podcast right now, recognize that it actually means nothing. It, like there's now, no formal definition. Exactly. Or, yeah. You can say it means certain things to certain people, right? To some people it means zero added sulfite. Some people it means, you know, what's happening in the vineyards and then, you know, natural no yeast fermentation. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But you have to accept that it has no meaning, right? So when you look for the most closely resembling movement in the drink space that also has no meaning it's craft beer mm -hmm. so if we can look at what happened with craft beer over the last 15 20 years you can see what i think is the natural evolution of natural wine mm -hmm. so what happened right so in craft beer you had a bunch of people that were looking for something that felt different and their own anti what they felt was the larger wine and I'm sorry, the larger beer and established beer brands outsiders, right? They were outsiders. Mm -hmm. They wanted to give some sort of name to their movement. They decided to call it craft beer. Mm -hmm. They then also had lots of people enter the industry of craft beer who had no formal training. So you had lots of people who were entering the world of beer prior to that, who had gone to brewing school because you had to have a brewer's, you know, education to get a job at Budweiser, to get a job at Miller Coors, those kinds of places, right? Mm -hmm. You had to have formal training in brewing, but to become a craft brewer, you could be a home, home brewer, brewer who yeah. was a lawyer during the day and brewing at night who then decided to make beer in natural wine. Same thing. You have people who, yes, are formally trained, but in a lot of places in natural wine, you have people who are former graphic designers, who are former wine writers, who are former psalms, who are now all making wine. They are all self-taught, mm -hmm. right? Because when you, with, with this kind of movement, right? Mistakes are allowed to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you don't have to worry as much about the beer becoming perfect because it's more about the movement of the beer. It's more about pushing up against the man, the man being the bigger place. So you have that first happen in craft beer, right? Then you have a bunch of people who gravitate. Now, this is where you're going to have to suspend. You're going to have to agree with me here just for this theory mm -hmm. who gravitate towards one flavor profile in craft beer, and uh, that is IPAs. Mm -hmm. So, again, for my theory to make it to the end of this conversation, right, you have to stop believing that natural wine also means clean wine. I believe that it does. There's lots of natural wines I love that are clean. Those are the wines I like that are natural. I will drink them all the time. I love the labels, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But 
for this theory, for where I think the movement of natural wine is going, where it's, why it's become so massive amongst uneducated wine drinkers, uneducated beer drinkers, people who are just coming in the category and excited about it, it is the flavors, right? It's the Brett, it's the mousiness, mm-hmm. it's the funk, right? IPA was the same, right? It was a very aggressive flavor people had never had before and was really, really interesting. Then what you have to have, which both of these movements have, is really amazing design and art, mm-hmm. right? So in the craft beer side, you have all of these really cool can art, stuff that looks different, that doesn't look like it was created in a marketing department. You have the same thing happening in natural wine. Really amazing, beautifully designed labels, really cool, unique shit on the bottle, right? Just like, wow, this is speaking to me. This feels more bespoke, okay? So you have these things. So then what happens in craft beer? We have the massive growth of craft beer, mm-hmm. right? And we have people who then become rabid devotees and have very loud fights, mm-hmm. not as much online. You know, there, there was maybe Facebook at the early stages of craft beer, et cetera, but craft beer really has been around since the late 90s. So you, you but you have, you start having fights come out online of people are like, I'm only a craft beer drinker. You also have to remember through all of this, what I think is very interesting to point out, same as natural wine, only about 10% of the population has ever been true craft beer drinkers in America. Right. Right. It's actually a minority of beer drinkers. Mm-hmm. Same with natural wine, right? It is a very strong, very vocal movement. It is a movement that I think is making lots of really positive changes in wine, but it still is a minority of people who are only natural wine drinkers. Right. Okay. So then... Now we come to where I so, – so so we agree that these things all happen, right? And it's now it's mm-hmm. everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's writing about it. All the really cool publications saying craft beer is the future of beer. Everyone who's cool is drinking craft beer. You have cool craft beer bars opening all over the country. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, cool craft breweries opening in all, you know, all these different places. That's exactly what's happening right now with natural wine. So what happens? A big conglomerate comes in and buys a brand. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, everything goes to shit. <laughs> and and that is what I believe is about to happen. The selling out. The, the sell-off will occur. Now, mm-hmm. again, this is where you have to agree with me that it's a flavor profile and that it's not about clean winemaking. Because I agree with every single person who wants to argue with me, because you can't argue with me, I agree with you, that says <laughs> true natural wine, or the way that I define it, right, which is you know low intervention, really clean, can't scale. You can't scale that kind of winemaking. Mm-hmm. But you can scale a fucking flavor. You can infect everything with bread. Mm-hmm. Right? You can infect every and because there's no formal definition, you don't get to decide what is considered natural wine by consumers. Right. And this is the same problem that craft beer had. There was never a formal definition. Mm-hmm. And as they tried to define it, they started making so many different allowances to keep certain brands in that had, yes, now at this point grown, but like then had money to pour back into associations and support their festivals and things like that, that they basically also became a laughing stock in terms of a term. Mm-hmm. So you have a you have this this big conglomerate that that sell that buys. Who was it at that point? It was ABI, right? Mm-hmm. They buy Goose Island. And they buy Elysian. So who's going to buy a big natural wine brand? I don't know. Who's the natural wine brand going to be? I don't know. Is it going to be Halcarious? Is it going to be one of these other just kind of like really big everywhere brands? Is it going to be that a big distributor that comes in and buys a Jenny and Francois? I don't know. But at the end of the day, money talks, right? Someone will get bought. There will be a brand that gets bought and that scales. So then what you will have is open warfare, right? You will see, you will have what you saw in during those days of craft beer where it was like, no, I will, I hate Budweiser and I'm dumping it on the floor. And you have what Dave talks about in a lot of his articles with us where people already walked into Elysian and walked into Goose Island, would buy a beer and dump it on the floor, mm-hmm. right? Because they were like, you are now sellouts. You are not part of our movement. So more of this will happen mm-hmm. over the course of the, those years. And then ultimately the term will lose meaning. 
mm-hmm. because people will realize that it was a, because it had no definition in the first place, it will kind of, you know, filter off into, into the either. You'll have other things that will will take its place. So for example, in the world of craft beer, now you have proudly independent, mm-hmm. you have sort of, you know, other terms that are being used. You'll sure. have sort of like local, you know, farm breweries, all this kind of stuff that's, that's taken the place of craft mm-hmm. because again, craft has no meaning, meaning, and actually it's a good thing, right? So now people are now more easily able to identify with the kind of brewery they are. Mm-hmm. I think you will then have this happen in the natural wine world, you'll have people who say, no, 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 we are a no SO2 winery. That's mm-hmm. what we're known as. Or we're a low intervention winery. Mm-hmm. Or we are a biodynamic winery. We'll kind of, and you'll go back to some of the old terms. And the majority of people won't care. Right. And everyone will just go back to drinking wine mm-hmm. until the next movement. Right. And that, I think, is going to be the arc of natural wine. And I think we're going to see this play out over the next five to six years. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a ways to still happen. But mm-hmm. I do think it, it, when you really as I continue to study this and look at what was happening in the world of natural wine and the conversations I've been having recently and the awareness now that the big brands have about natural wine, they can't ignore it anymore. They Mm. know that it's a movement. They're scared that they're losing millennial drinkers. They hear that the only thing that millennials are really interested in is, is natural wine. They're paying attention to the publications. It's going to happen. And I think that that's where, when that happens, we have the great shakeout. So that's my theory. I think it's a good theory. What do you think, Zach? Wow, that's all you got to say, Joanna? I feel like you're going to give me a moment to <laughs> no, respond. No, no, no. I mean, I have my thoughts. I was going to ask, um, you know, do the bigger companies actually feel threatened by natural wine enough to to want to do this? But I guess... I don't think it's a threat of natural wine. I think it's a threat of losing drinkers. The drinkers. And right. that was the same thing that was happening in the beer world. Is mm-hmm. the, the These these breweries shouldn't have cared. The, I mean, like, literally, these craft breweries were a a flea on, on the dog's butt, right? Mm-hmm. They were nothing. But... They were scared enough about ultimate about all the hype that mm-hmm. they were hearing in the press that so, that they felt like they had to do something. Look, that's why you had so many busts too, right? I mm-hmm. mean, Constellation goes and buys Ballast Point for a billion dollars because right. it's so scared, and then sells it for a fifty million recently. I mean, yeah. that's a yeah. massive flop. But mm-hmm. they were so scared, and I think from what I'm hearing, especially amongst domestic produ- like large scale domestic producers, there is a fear and mm-hmm. they don't know what else to do because if we want to go back a month ago to that episode that we talked about, we talked about millennial wine drinkers, right? right. They, they don't want to do the actual work, right? They mm-hmm. don't want to actually like just invest in talking to, to these generations and marketing to them and, you know, making their, their labels look less, lame, you know, and making their wine more approachable or better quality, you know, making their luxury brands look like actual luxury brands. Mm -hmm. They don't want to do that. They just want to go because it's easier when you're a big company. It's just easier to go buy something. Mm -hmm. And so I think someone will do it. And there's probably five to six companies that can. Right. The question is who will take the risk? Who will do it first? You know, in beer, it was really only ABI that was going to do it first. Um, they kind of always had that reputation of being the risk taker. I don't know. There's no, there's not one big company in wine, Sally, that's known as a risk taker. Mm -hmm. So I don't know who will be that risk taker, Um, but it will be somebody. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have a couple of thoughts here. One is that one of the interesting things about this comparison and, and sort of trying to map the evolution of natural wine as a, as a trend onto the previous craft beer trend is that, One of the challenges for craft beer, as you uh, laid out, Adam, is that craft beer was really about who was making the beer, right? It was about, you know, the the notion at least that it tried to come, that it tried to present was that the 
the, the real thing there was it was being made by not these big, you know, beer conglomerates right. that it was also flavor profile different, but in some ways it was very diffuse. And yes, the IPA became the sort of flagship style uh, for craft beer in part because it was so distinct from the sort of adjunct lagers that dominated domestic beer production prior to that. But there was no there was no argument in, in craft beer circles that only IPAs were that IPAs were the only valid expression of craft True. beer. Mm-hmm. That, that, yeah. that any that very few craft beer uh, breweries were solely devoted to IPAs until relatively recently. In the earlier days of craft beer, it was really about, you know, you had five, six, seven, eight different beers. And yes, your IPA was probably your bestseller in most places, but you know, you offered a you made a lighter beer, you made a, you know, a winter beer or whatever, right? But there was a clear proliferation of one one style. Yeah, even even prior, right? Even like you had the West Coast IPA for, I mean, the early 2000s. I mean, now, yes, you, the last 10 years you've had more IPAs, you know, New England. But, I mean, the IPA is basically – I mean, ever since Dogfish had figured out, you right, know, right. continual hopping yeah. with, the, you know, 90 minutes, the, the IPA really has become – all that, but but I recognize what you're saying yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of it. It's th- not the th- only th- thing. There was yeah. diversity. I think there's diversity in natural wine too. Sure. I just do think there is sort of the, this movement, and I also do think part of where natural wine is similar as from what you were just saying is that it is a lot about the stories of the of the winemakers being regular normal people yeah. like people who are farmers and that's the same thing you heard like you know he's not a marketer he's just a brewer and yeah. i say he because it was always about men in the early course, craft beer days course, yeah. white bearded men but like it, that that scene is also so familiar mm-hmm. yes but i think i think that's exactly what i was going to say is that like natural wine in some ways is even less equipped to combat a you know, a large scale brand coming either buying its way into the space or coming up with a product that competes mm-hmm. because, you know, natural wine has focused so much on, as you've mentioned, Adam, I think, you know, the flavor profile being a, uh, a sort of a, an indicator of natural wine and even production methodology. And I actually would disagree with the notion that that sort of low intervention winemaking can't scale up. Um, Interesting. Because I don't I think, think that's, that's something that I, they think, would I think say. it's an unknown. No one has tried. Right. But I don't think that right. it's. I don't think there's anything theoretically the stopping. Point, right? Right. Well, but I. I mean, again, if if um, you know, large wine company X decides that what it thinks its next growth opportunity is is a million cases of quote unquote natural wine that's twenty bucks a bottle. Well, they can find that much organic vineyard material if they need to. They can convert mm-hmm. some of their production over to organic. They can make wine that is you know quote-unquote low intervention, at least that most people would sort of accept fits into the parameters, shit, they can build a custom facility that's dedicated to that, that they can, you know, they can keep away from commercial yeast. Again, like there's no real, you know, the no one has tried to do this at scale because the market hasn't really been there. But if the market is going to be there or might be there, I don't think there's anything that prevents a company from doing that. Again, it's an investment, but so is any other large-scale venture, whether it's, you know, wh- whatever style of wine you're trying to make. And, um, and natural wine has no, you know, no kind of built in, um, defenses against this because the term is, you know, as we've talked about has been, is both, you know, if not undefined, ill-defined and it has come to be associated with a flavor set that is, you know, I think pretty replicable at scale, even if you, you know, certainly if you're willing to disregard the sort of, um, tenets of the of the early days like again any movement is immediate is if it gathers any kind of adherence is going to move beyond the control of the original you know kind of 
progenitors of it. They're they're they just they they can't wrangle it anymore, and that's already where mm-hmm. we are with natural wine. I think long we're, we're long past that point. And again, you know, I don't have a I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't really care, um, particularly personally. Like I think, like you, Adam, like you, Joanna, there are wines that would fit under the natural heading as generally accepted that I like. There's mm-hmm. plenty that I'm not that interested in, but you know, big brands can do organic looking design. They can do you know, funky if they want, you know, they haven't wanted to, because as you've said before, Mm. it's a small, I think it's an even smaller fraction of wine drinkers than certainly than craft beer is for, for beer drinkers in this country at this point. But if it keeps growing, if it is the dominant or a dominant style among younger drinkers, then yeah, people will enter this category. And I a hundred percent agree with you that there's going to be a big fight about it. I mean, there's going to be a huge fight. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you were gone and we had this kind of conversation uh, with Dave on the podcast about, you know, how, how craft beer got over its sellout kind of phase. And I think the answer was basically like craft beer was like, shit, we, you know, we need, we need success stories. And so selling out, you know, five, 10 years ago was seen as a, as a failure. And now it's seen as a victory. And I wouldn't be shocked if the same doesn't hold true for, for quote unquote, natural wine. I want to ask you a question though, Adam, and you too, Joanna, about this, which is that one of the reasons why this, I think change emerged is that, uh, in craft beer is that the craft beer bar lost potency that that so much of the of the sort of cachet of going to a craft beer bar in a lot of places was really diminished replaced in part by tap rooms right. um you know as more mm-hmm. of a gathering spot for beer drinkers i don't know if that's going to hold true for natural wine because you know you can put a craft brewery literally anywhere it's a little hard to do that with with a winery especially if you're you know, in a place that doesn't grow grapes and it's hard to kind of make the natural claim if you're trucking your grapes in or you're getting, you know, concentrate from across the country or around the world. I, I So so the natural wine bar might remain more vital in a way that the craft beer bar didn't. But what, what do you guys think? Is that is that are the natural uh, wine bar days numbered in the same way that craft beer bars seem to be? Well, I, I feel like right now they're still pretty hot. Yeah. But but I, I don't know. I think that more the more that um, natural wine kind of shows up on restaurant menus uh, that people won't have to go to natural wine bars to have yeah, I the think, wine that they love so much. I think that's what, like, there was, there's two things that kind of were the demise of the natural wine bar. I mean, sorry, the, the craft beer bar. One is the reason Joanna's stating, which is, like, a lot of restaurants started realizing we need to have one or two craft beers on the list mm-hmm. or just bars in general. we got to have a few craft beers. Right. And a lot of that was... Budweiser started going into all these dives with Goose Island and Elysian mm. and all these other ones and they they push their muscle. So, you know, what happens if one of the big wine companies like, hey, we have two or three natural wine brands now. You can have this. So people don't have to go seek it out. And second, I think one of the big killers of most craft beer bars was the IPA. I think that people were like, okay, I'm going to tr- – the, the draft list is literally – 20 different IPAs and like yeah. one Pilsner, one mm. lager and like a stout. And the people who were really passionate about craft beer at that point had evolved to think a lot about the other things that were craft that weren't just IPA, the saisons, etc. Mm. And if you could see that happening as well in natural I'm like if all the wines are funky. Mm-hmm. There's going to be people that are like, well, I like natural wine, but this doesn't define, you know, I, I, I'm looking for something else. Mm-hmm. And I do think that what you'll also see is what we've seen in craft beer, which is that as all this shakes out, 
the future of natural wine becomes people, and you're starting to see it now in, in some actually places, even in New York, the, the, the main places that were all about the real funk, et cetera, because it was, it was early on, will go and shift still to believing in biodynamic, right. organic, but to clean. Yes. To well-made, to, to 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 pure fruit expression wines. In the same way you saw a lot of these very classic original craft beer bars back away very slowly from, you know, 20 taps of IPAs and start adding more Pilsners, mm-hmm. more lagers, more things like that because their palates evolved. Yeah. Right? And that's 100% going to happen here as well. And that it just feels like it's going to be the natural evolution. But before all that happens, we're going to have to have a purchase. The one, I think, thing I was thinking about, Zach, when you were talking the one thing that could scale even faster, which we haven't talked about, but has been lumped into natural wine and is a wine that could be made at scale is orange wine. Mm-hmm. And it's th- that could very easily become a, that could be a brand that's bought and scaled very fast. Mm. It can be made like people make rosé, right? right? And I, I th- there's a weird way that that happened, that orange wine became natural wine. It's right. never been natural wine. Mm-hmm. It's always been just really cool, good wine that's been around forever. Mm-hmm. But that is, you know, as that's becoming more and more in line with what people think of as natural wine, I think that could be, you know, something that gets bought. Right. Mm. Do we see someone who's doing a really, I don't know, a, a cool orange wine project in California with cool labels all of a sudden get bought? Right. I say, shit, we can do this. We can scale this really easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah. I want to go back to your clean wine thing that you yeah. just mentioned, because that's kind of, this is what I was thinking in terms of like, how does natural wine end when you kind of put this to us the other day? What I think happens is that Maybe it's not a buyout, but I think it's that there are more and more good, quote unquote, natural wines come onto the market. And the people who were gravitating towards that, like, fox den funkiness have a good wine. And they're like, oh, this is actually what natural wine is supposed to taste like, whatever. And then they kind of like those, like, funkier wines, kind of that flavor, maybe we shed it a little bit. And then natural wine kind of takes on this other thing where it's like good right um, and then it's just, wine. it's just like it's just like good wine yeah and you know i i mentioned this because we were talking about um adam you just got back from california and you were talking to winemakers there who are kind of noticing this trend and and they make very traditional wines but they're also experimenting with more natural natural wines right that they're calling it natural because they see people gravitating towards the style in the market and they want to appeal to a younger generation of drinkers i think we're going to see more of that i think you're right and then i think people will experience those wines make that choice and then these breadier wines will slip slip away yeah and i think you'll see again what will happen is in the same way we've seen it the last decade with craft beer the militancy will become very intense. It, we're not there yet, right? I right. think, like, I'm, I'm talking about a war that's yet to come, but that there will be a lot of militancy, and then people will realize that the fight's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. And just like everyone fought over craft beer, they'll be like, you know what? Like, I just like good beer, man. Like, yeah. I kind of, like, sometimes I do want a Modelo, and I don't want to apologize for it. But it's the identity thing that we talked about with the craft beer stuff, yep. too. It's like people will stop being like, well, you know, we're the keepers of natural wine. We are this, like, we're the outsiders, which is kind of how this movement came about, right? Yep. Just like craft beer. Um, and I think that will just, like, evolve. And mm-hmm. People will, will stop identifying themselves with the 
natural wine that they they drink. Right. And I also wonder too if like one one way that you might reach a little bit more of a of a somewhat uh, you know negotiated truce or something is that <laughs> what what wine doesn't have to the extent that beer have had is obvious behemoth villains. I mean, they're obviously very large uh, wine yeah. companies, but there isn't the there isn't a Budweiser equivalent in wine, right? The thing that that holds thirty percent market share or whatever. There's no let alone you know. Miller Lite or Coors Lite or whatever, right? And so, what wine has always had to its you know benefit and uh, curse is that it has a lot of producers at at all different levels of scale from all over the world. And there is, I think, it's harder. You know, craft beer was a, a little bit of an easier dichotomy when it was first launched. You know, as a concept because it was it was really either you know one of these it was you know you had your your massive brands, massive mm-hmm. brewing brewing concerns. You had some you know, good sized local or regional breweries, you know, that, that still persist in some cases or, or have gone out of business uh, in others. And then you had basically people in their, you know, in their garages and wine has, you know, so many more steps along the way from, you know, super large behemoth brands that make millions of cases a year to, uh, you know, to some of the really, really small producers who make, you know, 500 cases a year or whatever. And so I think what you'll also see is is people who have been perhaps militant about natural wine will say, well, the thing I really love is small production wine, right? What what appeals to me is, and some of that might be snobbish exclusivity, some of it might just be feeling more connected to a producer who does everything themselves or does almost everything themselves or with a very small group that doesn't make a ton of wine that owns, you know, doesn't own a vineyard or owns a very small amount of land, that that the, the small scale of it is the appeal and that that allows for people who have decided that the very specific flavor set that we've described, the the very kind of funky, foxy, weird shit that people might get tired of, might already be getting tired of, or might want from time to time in the same way that, you know, crap, that beer drinkers might still want a triple IPA from time to time. It's just not the only thing they want to drink. People might say, hey, you know, there's time and a place for that kind of wine. But what I really want to do is explore all these other small producers in the U.S., abroad, whatever, who make interesting wines from all over the you know different varieties, different styles. And but what appeals to me is, is size. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes. I think that's true. I do think they'll easily find a villain. Well, I think it's like natural wine and non-natural wine. Right. I think that. I think that for sure. I also think it's natural wine. And grocery store wine. I, I think that also, yeah. You know, and mass produced. Mass produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that there's there. Yes, I think there's a few, there's a lot of bigger producing companies in the wine world. Whereas, really, ABI by the time craft beer was at its height was the had bought everybody else, right? right. So they were really controlling a lot of it. So th- that's where everyone was like, you know, turning their fur. But there were the other big brands too that turned around and did it right. I mean, you you, you saw. Kieran came in and bought some stuff. Kieran's a huge, huge company. It just mm-hmm. happened to be Japanese. So we weren't paying attention to it. But they waited it. also, right? Yeah. They waited Heineken came in and bought Lagunitas. Mm-hmm. And like, so all these different companies came in and bought these other brands as well. It was just that ABI was here and ABI owned the one beer brand that everyone considered to be the big boy, which is Bud Light and Budweiser. Mm-hmm. I definitely don't think we have one wine brand that everyone can say is the big wine brand. But maybe it's just the first. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a few, right? But there's not one in the same way. So, uh, but it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's as mark his words, everyone. Yeah, it's going to happen as as you're seeing it. 
It's just I'm I'm waiting, I'm waiting <laughs> to hear. And look, maybe it's it's not maybe it's not a natural wine first. Maybe it's a low intervention vermouth or something like that that know. someone buys first. But I, it's going to happen, <laughs> and then we're gonna have this huge fight. And people are going to take sides, and then we're going to realize, why were we fighting in the beginning? We all love wine. And <laughs> it's kind of going to move on, but it's it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. So, Such a threat. Thank you for uh, for indulging me today oh, and letting me uh, yeah. talk through my theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been one that I've been thinking about for a while. And I'd love to hear what uh, others who listen to the podcast think as well. Mm-hmm. It always is really interesting, especially if you listen to the theory and you don't agree with me, or if you're someone who, like, is 100% a proponent of this movement and wants to fight. Let's go. Mm-hmm. I, I I really like having conversations about this because I think it's it natural wine is the most interesting thing happening as a movement in wine right now. Mm-hmm. It is it's the most impactful movement that's happening whether you like it all or not. I've convinced there's a lot that is very good about what's happening in natural wine. There's a lot that's really annoying about what's happening in natural wine. Mm-hmm. But there it is a movement that people need to pay attention to, and and I think it's a movement we need to, to, to look to the past to to see where it's going to be headed in the future. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, Joanna, Zach, talk to you Friday. See you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making the show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.